everyone welcome back to another episode of the ruby rogues podcast i'm your host today valentino stole and i'm joined today by dave kimura dave you want to say hello hey what's going on valentino it's been a while yeah it has been a while how are things things are good things are good so kids are crazy work is good everything's normal so <laughs> nice hey normal's good yep <laughs> well we were chatting before the show kind of about hosting services and kind of something unusual that you've done. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit more and uh, set the stage here? Yeah, sure. So the idea is the hybrid infrastructure. And essentially what that means is you have your application up in a cloud provider, but then you also have some hardware to support that application elsewhere. So that could be in a data center or within your office or something like that. And that can kind of give you the best of both worlds because to mimic the infrastructure that AWS has is not only extremely expensive, but there are just so many hoops to kind of jump through. However, if you can leverage their services for the user-facing part of your traffic and the very important bits of it, then that's going to generally be your best route without having a whole DevOps team, infrastructure team to take care of things. However, there are situations where it just doesn't make sense anymore. And so you may find that you have some extremely heavy background jobs that are very heavy in calculations and you want to pull those out of the cloud to host your own hardware to be able to do those calculations and communicate back to your cloud setup so it's able to then do all the user interface user interface stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm curious to see what that looks like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean to me, you know, I've never had a problem with the cloud, but I also haven't, you know, had to pay the huge bills that many big companies have to pay especially for a lot of the compute stuff. I will say I, I have tried out running Minecraft servers, and that has eventually become expensive, <laughs> running mm -hmm. a lot of those too many at once. So I'm curious, what, where do you even start something like that? Yeah, so the first thing is that you always have to keep in mind is security. Because if you're talking about having your data up in the cloud, up in AWS and whatever, then that has its own you know, levels of security that it goes through. But as soon as you start talking about bringing outside services into your infrastructure, then you have to start taking this kind of stuff very serious and to really have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed because you don't want to be the victim of a security breach because of some choices that you've made to cut corners or to cut costs. So one thing that I do is I will have a allow list of all the IP addresses that are allowed to communicate with the services directly. And I also have a VPN tunnel that they will securely communicate through. So nothing is done over plain text. I have a cheap, tiny, what are they, the T2 nano instances in AWS that I have a VPN tunnel installed on. So to give you the high-level overview of what I'm doing here is on Drifting Ruby, I'm now allowing people to download videos as a subscriber. And if you are subscribed, you can download a video 
but it goes through a encoding queue for a few different reasons. One, it will help throttle the bad actors who have in the past, because I did allow downloading videos before, and people would just script and download the entire archive crashing the servers. And so it's helped, it's helped to mitigate that, but then it also helps to be an accountability thing where as a subscriber, you do have a terms of use that you agree to. And part of that is to not share out the videos. You know, it is a subscription service. It is something that helps put food on our table. So I do take that kind of piracy or whatever you want to call it, serious. You know, I'm never, don't quote me on it, but I don't think I would ever take someone to court over releasing videos unless if they were just very, very nasty about like, you know, I can do whatever I want, screw you and all that. However, it's just an accountability thing. So what I'm also doing is I'm transcoding the videos because they are right now all HLS videos. So it's broken down into 10 second chunks at different bit rates to help service those in other countries or with worse broadband connections. So it can stream a 720p instead of a 1080p, depending on your connection. And so I take those chunks, I stitch them together, and then allow the user to download it. But part of that transcoding process, I am also embedding an a unique, non-identifiable as far as like no one can figure out who you are from that information. But I am embedding just a token that I can then see if anyone leaks the video, tie it back to a particular subscription, and then just kindly ask that person not to share the videos and stuff. But to do that kind of transcoding locally in the cloud, I priced it out. It was going to be about $1,500 a month. Which is a huge price. That's crazy. And this isn't the primary service that I'm offering. This is just for those who like to go off grid for the weekend or something, but want to catch up on videos. I want to be able to service them. And so this is a way that they can then do that. But I can't afford to spend $1,500 a month on a service that's not the primary point of the application. So what I've done instead was. I created a tiny T2 Nano instance that acts as a VPN that I can then, from a outside environment, connect to. And it connects to the database, connects to the Redis instance, and that's extremely slow. But it does work because I'm doing all of this in the background. So it's not user interfacing where they click a button, now they have to wait you know, five minutes because of the latency connections and the transcoding. Instead, they just had to wait for the transcoding to happen. Then they get a notification that's ready to download. I'm doing this with NVIDIA RTX 3060 GPUs. I do have a few of them that I've put in a rack. And I'm able to do all that transcoding off of AWS's infrastructure in my own, which is pennies on the dollar. I mean, significantly cheaper than what AWS has. I think I spent $1,500 on hardware and it's going to be hardware that I now own. So now I don't have to pay $1,500 a month for it. I think the total bill came out to be like $2,200 after GPUs and processor and everything. But that's still pennies on the dollar compared to what AWS is having. And to the end user, it doesn't make a difference if it's at home, if it's in a data center, if it is in an office. 
to have this hardware because they don't ever see that end result, the end of it. They just see that, okay, they're processing a video. Okay, the video is ready. Each video took about 30 seconds to do the full transcoding, which I think is pretty quick considering what it's actually doing. So I'm curious, are you, are you keeping like kind of copies of these videos on your, you know, local system? So everything is kind of being done through temp files and then it re-uploads it to the main AWS site where it then gets stored as an active storage attachment. So it is getting stored on S3 ultimately in the end. And then just to make sure that I don't run out of disk space locally, all that stuff is cleaned up after the job is done. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I'd, I'd hate to be your kids trying to use the internet when you're uploading all those videos. <laughs> how, how does, so how does your like, internet setup work? Are there, are there days you could have outages if you have a power outage, as an example? Yeah, so the basically, a couple of considerations that I did take is that you know security is important. So all the drives locally here are encrypted, but then also have a completely separate VLAN for any kind of, quote, corporate traffic. So that means like my business traffic. I keep it completely separate from the household stuff because I don't want my kids downloading something on their computer that then creates some ransomware attack that then affects stuff that is actually bringing in money for the family. So you can't just think of security as the communication between the servers or the infrastructure environments, but you also have to think about it within because hardware access is you know, a big security threat if someone were to get access to it. And you can do that pretty easily with a malware just hopping across the network. But as far as bandwidth goes, I have a gigabit download, gigabit upload uh, speeds at home which the kids never even tap into. And through quality of service settings, I do give priority to my, as I labeled it, the corporate network. That's really interesting. I mean, I'm all for, you know, throwing compute at, ever since the, you know, the science computing, scientific computing days, right? Where you could share your compute resources, right? With the global network for good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ever since that idea, right, it's made so much sense to try and all, like, use all these resources you have, which are just sitting around. And it's kind of funny, you know, <laughs> I remember a few jobs ago, we had just like these big machines and we created thin clients out of them because they were just always connected at the office. And we were slowly weaning away from, you know, working in the office and we'd be able to SSH into them anytime we wanted to do some work and have some kind of X screen or something like that, you know, so that we can mm-hmm. see what was happening. And they were just sitting around most of the time and we ended up, you know, mining for Bitcoin or something like that. Just, <laughs> you know, as the start of, of the whole, like, well, what do you do with this compute stuff, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and then you start to see what else you could do with it, right? Because it is just sitting there and uh, it makes a lot of sense to try and offload a lot of this expensive compute that you, you would try and offload on-premise or off-premise somewhere else, right? It's kind of the same thing, except it seems you've taken on a lot more networking responsibilities. <laughs> yeah, and I enjoy those responsibilities. You know, I think it's fun. I already have a bunch of servers that I use for other things, so it's not unfamiliar it does take a certain level of knowledge to get all that interconnected, especially securely. 
But if that's not your cup of tea, then maybe doing a hybrid setup isn't for you. Having it just up in a cloud provider is the right route. It's a kind of a double-edged sword here for you now, right? Because <laughs> now you have all these extra things to maintain. But I mean, you are comfortable with it. And I feel like as long as you keep those number of things small, <laughs> it should be maintainable for you, right? Yeah. And what is small? Because I do have a 42U rack that is like mostly filled. I mean, <laughs> but it is just one rack. So it is small in the amount of space it takes in the basement, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess it depends what you're trying to do. Video processing is definitely going to eat up some resources. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what Have you tried doing anything else with this kind of setup or has it been specifically just video? Yeah, so a lo- at the beginning, and this is kind of like repurposed hardware. So at the beginning of COVID-19, back in 2020, I did buy a few GPUs that I dedicated to folding at home which is not cryptocurrency and it's not mining, but it's protein folding. And essentially, you get tasks to do calculations on, simulations on on protein folding that goes to medical research. And Folding at Home had released a COVID-19 protein folding that they were trying to get calculations on. So that's something that I heavily invested in back then to do these to try to you know help fight covid-19 in the own way in my own way that I could so i repurposed some of that hardware for this particular project that's pretty cool i i know there were quite a few things like that with the shared computing mm-hmm. i'm trying to i think feel like the dna synthesis was one where you could share your resources to contribute in that way yeah that's pretty, it's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, I still am curious on the kind of security implications of distributed computing in this way. Because I, I do trust all of the nodes that are, <laughs> you know, that you're kind of attached to in that way. How do you feel about it? Well, I think certain projects like Folding at Home has at least gotten the reputation where it's pretty good. But again, anything that you do that you're kind of weary about, separate from your actual network. So you can get a network switch that's pretty cheap that has like a five or eight port switch, RJ45 connections, and create VLANs. So you have your router coming in or your modem coming in to your router. Then you have that router going directly into this switch. That switch, you can then have different VLANs and you can have one VLAN for any kind of crypto or folding that you're doing. You have another VLAN for all of your wireless devices or your home network. And if you have some employer stuff, so if I have a day job that an employer requires me to have their own hardware, and stuff, then I can use a separate VLAN for that. So anything that may come through on their VPN connection or something, they don't see my devices at home. And my devices at home don't see the work computer and that kind of stuff. So I think VLANs, you could either do it that way or have a physical separate network switches for each, which is just as cheap, but just as functional. So I think that's the first step of security is, you know, separate out the devices if you have a kind of a mixed bag wherever you're doing this. You know, this makes me think what we're really missing is distributed sidekick. (laughs) 
Yeah, and that's essentially what I've done and how I made you know my hybrid setup possible is because I am using Sidekick. And all of the jobs that I want to happen on a outside network, it does have to connect to that Redis instance. And it does so through the VPN. And from that VPN, it you know has that allow list to allow my IP addresses that I have specified to connect to that Redis instance. And so whenever my servers pick up a job on that specific Sidekick queue, it'll then process them here at my home versus if I have... Anyways, but the nice thing about that is if my home network ever goes down or my IP address changes and so it's no longer in this allowed list, then it's going to stay in the queue. And I have monitoring set up to check my home servers that they are up and running. So I would be notified that something is down. I'm able to then resolve it and then it'll pick up that queue. So there's no data loss or anything like that. And if it happens in the middle of processing a job, it would fail. Next time it connects, it just says like, hey, this job failed. It didn't go through. And then it would retry it. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm trying to think of uh, where the next steps for this like start heading. Well, what do you have planned for it? So I don't want to use the term microservices because that's not what this is. <laughs> I call this hybrid computing where I'm mixing bare metal and cloud services. That's what I want to call this, not microservices, because it's not. But I mean, think of, you know, take another real life use case for this, where DHH posted a article on leave in the cloud. And rightfully so, they were paying a lot of money for the cloud services. But could they have reduced the bill enough to a reasonable point where they would be happy with the cloud services? And if they had pulled all of their background jobs happening locally, wherever they're going to be hosting these bare metal servers, and if they had done that, how much would they reduce their bill by? And, you know, would it have made sense? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thought. I mean, nobody likes paying the bills. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it's a, I keep coming back to whether or not the management is worth it. Mm-hmm. And you seem to have a pretty good grasp on how it all works. I, it doesn't sound necessarily like you've hit any snags with it yet. <laughs> have you had to debug issues yet with with this kind of setup? Or has it been pretty smooth sailing? It's been pretty smooth sailing, mainly because I'm familiar with the hardware and that kind of stuff. I did end up having to order a different CPU cooler because the CPU cooler that I had physically would not fit into the rack server. I thought I knew it was going to be close, but it was too close and I didn't want to damage any of the heat pipes. So I did have to pick up a different CPU cooler that wasn't as efficient because it's technically smaller. But this isn't going to be a heavy CPU test that I'm doing. It's mainly GPU driven. So I was okay with that kind of compromise. And the other issue is density. You know, as you were saying, like the physical size of things, I wanted to cram as many GPUs in there as possible. But physical cases have limitations and you also have PCI Express Lane limitations. And so one of the limitations I ran into was the physical case size. And back when I was doing the folding at home, I had some PCI 1X riser cards that I was experimenting with because I'm not driving videos 
from these graphics cards. It's a headless machine. So the question is, could I repurpose when I was doing folding at home these PCI 1X riser cards for GPU transcoding? And essentially what I found is that these PCI X 1X riser cards, they just plug into your PCI 1X. So you have PCI 1X, 4X, 8X, 16X, 16X being what you plug your graphics cards into. So you are basically going down to one lane, which on PCI 4 is still like, I don't know, like 10 gigabits per second. So pretty quick data transfer. But could I use FFmpeg and the transcoding when it's going through this PCI 1X to this little adapter card? And the answer was no, I could not get that to work which is a shame because I could have really increased the density of that server if that had worked. But unfortunately, I'm down to only using three PCI Express 16X lanes, one of which I had to put on a riser card, which a riser cable is basically a thick cable that just goes into the 16X slot and then goes out and gives you a uh, 16X plug-in, basically an extension cable for your PCIe. And I had to do that because the physical case would not fit three two bin wide cards, you know, side by side by side. Oh, the physical limitations of your basement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that kind of leads me to as you're starting to expand this kind of server farm that you're starting, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you see yourself like shopping your setup out to people? to for like a similar <laughs> cheaper AWS compute? Absolutely not. And the the reason why I'm so strict on that is because I don't have the infrastructure to make this a client-facing product. You know, I don't have two different internet trunks coming in that can fail over. And to do that failover isn't cheap either. I also don't have, you know, days worth of battery backup if something happens. I don't have the cooling or fire suppression needed if something happens. I think those are all very important considerations to have if you are going to be doing something like this, uh, especially if that's going to be your client-facing thing. In that case, you really need to just put them in a data center. There's data centers all over the United States and world where you can take your physical rack servers and put them into their data center and you pay like $50 a month per one one U of uh, rack space or something like that. Yeah, I remember seeing a few services offered like that. I guess it makes sense. I mean, there is the whole like on-premise offering too, where people will like retrofit a cloud setup locally for you <laughs> on-premise, <Yeah. laughs> which is an interesting idea also. But it, I mean, it sounds like you're solving a very specific problem that you have, like that a lot of companies have, I feel like where they have this like massive compute portion of their business that needs to get done. And they end up, because they've locked into whatever provider that they have, they end up getting cutting off an arm and a leg just to use it <laughs> for yeah. convenience. Which AWS does have transcoding services. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Where if I had gone the route of, you know, okay, let's first implement this feature in the cloud because that's where everything is hosted, then we can do that. But we need to use their tools. I don't want to pay fifteen hundred a month for a always on uh, GPU instance. So let's use their services. Turns out it does work, but now my bill is fluctuating quite a bit, and it's a lot higher than I want it to be. 
know, maybe my AWS monthly bill is $800 now, you know, in addition to the normal hosting. I'm like, man, you know, I really want to switch that out and let's just, you know, rent some cheaper GPU VM instances on AWS and that would cost us $500 a month. Like, you know, wow, we're doing you know, it for almost half. Yeah, it's not as fast, but it's not client facing, so that's okay. But then you realize, like, well, I really kind of like the speed that we got from their service offerings with the transcoding service. So why don't we go a hybrid setup? So now have you not only switched around the infrastructure, you know, two, three different times, but you've also had to rewrite a lot of code because going from a AWS transcoding service to a GPU VM or to a hybrid cloud setup, then you know that's going to require code changes, which takes time. And you can also introduce bugs and that kind of stuff. Yeah, you make a good point about kind of vendor complexity, right, with your implementations. Like if you went with the transcoding option from AWS, you got to learn how all those APIs work and how their callback architecture works, you know, how they're monitoring, all those extra things. Where a lot of things where you run it locally, you just kind of take for granted. <laughs> it's built into the system, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, since you're doing a lot of like encoding, maybe specifically, does FFmpeg have like GPU specific uh, optimizations you could take advantage of? Yeah. And that was a bit of a learning practice that I had to go through because there's a, a few different hurdles that I found in that process. One of them was with the RTX 3060 graphics cards. I could have gone with a Quadro, but again, I was repurposing some of these graphics cards from a previous project. So I didn't want to go out and spend $2,000 for each Quadro card. But one of the limitations that NVIDIA has is you can only do three transcoding streams on the machine at a time. But there are ways around that that I guess are permissible with the consumer-grade graphics cards. And it's a bash script that you run that will unlock the streaming from that driver so you can do more streams at a time. So I think I'm running six at a time, which gives you know pretty decent performance on the transcoding service. So that was one of the hiccups that I ran into was just figuring that out, getting that working and all that. But then compiling FFmpeg to use the NVIDIA NVENC encoding as well as the CUDA cores, that was a whole different process. And luckily, that's something that's pretty well documented depending on if you find the right site. But I ended up, after a bunch of testing, found the right compiling configurations for my use case. And it seems to work pretty well. It's funny you mentioned CUDA. That was going to be my follow-up question. Uh, like Now that you have like hardware-specific implementation, have you looked, uh, have you started like now considering CUDA programming as a way to like speed up things? Or are you kind of just like, oh, I'll set it and forget it. I'll worry about the infrastructure. <laughs> I have thought about dabbling in some Python with these CUDA cores because, I mean, that's essentially... You know, PyTorch and all those libraries are like driven by these NVIDIA hardwares. So I have thought about it, but you know, a lot of my development and learning comes from solving an actual problem that I have 
And I don't know what problem I have that could warrant or be fixed by doing some AI stuff. You know, I think that's kind of been my drawback. I see. Yeah, I mean, if anything, having this kind of setup makes you kind of have to think about these things more, right? <laughs> like it's a it's a physical trade off now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's it's not just okay. I'm going to implement it this way and then I'm good. It's like well, adding this extra stress could also like make this hardware crash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know there is the power consideration. The our price per kilowatt is nine cents, which isn't the lowest in the U.S., but it's also far from the highest. And I, have you hooked up a meter to it yet? <laughs> yes, my entire server rack runs about forty to fifty USD per month. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, I mean that's very cheap considering that hosting in a data center for a one U would be like fifty dollars a month and stuff. So. And then your compute charges. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I did end up running a 20 amp circuit to the server rack. So it's on a dedicated circuit. And I do have battery backups enough to survive a brownout or a power blip for a few minutes. So it does have, you know, some, some protection in place there from a grid standpoint. But we only have one internet trunk coming in and that kind of stuff. So there are single points of failures with this that it's just not cost effective to resolve either in a hybrid cloud setup or going straight AWS transcoding service or something like that. Yeah, I guess if you think of it like a sidekick queue, sure, the queue could start getting filled up, but it shouldn't matter if it's running or not. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you're you're putting too much on the stack there. Yeah, if the sidekick queue gets you know filled with requests, then one, I am not monitoring my email or my notification systems that my servers are down. <laughs> you know, so uh, that's one thing. But it's also something that I can scale this out if it becomes very popular and people are doing it a lot. Or I can kind of use some analytics to see, okay, these people normally will download the video two days after it's been released. So I'm, I will preemptively transcode those. So I could do something like that. That gives a better end-user experience or maybe all the newest videos I will transcode slowly over a few days or something like that. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, since you have it locally too, changing. So how does that... Do you treat it like you're, you're deploying <laughs> to production? How does that aspect of it work, right? Because like, I feel like you, know, you just have your machine locally. Are you just like you know, SSHing in and then testing it out live? <laughs> so my end goal is to put it in my CICD pipeline. Currently, I just do a SSH in, get pull, bundle, yarn, whatever, research, psychic, and, you know, it's all good. But I've been working and I've been dabbling in MSRK, a project library that is aimed to solve deployment stuff. And that's something that I'm really interested in looking at. And or what I've done in the past is use Docker and Portainer to handle deployments, which I kick off from a CI/CD pipeline. So that's the other route that I'm thinking. And I may end up going that route instead because one is familiar, so I know how to support it. But then also, I'm able to have it part of my actual pipeline. And if I can do that, which would be really interesting, 
I do have to first experiment with the performance overhead of Docker and GPU pass-through. So that's a, my current hiccup. But I wanted to get that proof of concept out there and working first. So when you're thinking about expanding this, like let's say you have like all oh, a whole new idea for product or service that you're going to be offering. Like, are you thinking, okay, like I got to set up a whole new box for that specific thing? Do you keep things shared? Like, how, how do you start reasoning about that? So when you talk about uh, shared resources on a physical machine, there are considerations that you have to take with security, especially with Docker, because Docker in its of itself can end up using shared memory and that kind of stuff. So I do like Proxmox, which is a bare metal hypervisor that allows you to spin up VMs very similar to how you do it up in AWS or DigitalOcean or something like that. And I really like that route if I am doing something where I have multiple projects kind of sharing the same physical hardware. That's interesting. So you would you would kind of scale sideways to support yeah. new things. Yeah. With the GPU transcoding specifically, I can vertically scale that too. So I can get better GPUs that can handle more streams at a time. So it's not very CPU-driven at all. It's mostly the uh, NVIDIA cards that's doing all the leg lifting there. So I can swap out those 3060s for a 4090 if I wanted to. You know, that would, I think, current going price is like $1,500 for one of those cards. But if it can, hands down, do it not only faster, but handle more simultaneous streams or transcoding services, then I could get three of those cards into one box. I could get a different type of box. I was actually thinking about getting a Bitcoin mining rack server, which allows for eight separate GPUs to be in there. And then you just have riser cards. So based on the motherboard I get, I could fit like maybe five on a particular motherboard on a PCI 16X lane as long as I had enough lanes to service those, which I would have to get like a AMD Threadripper or something like that to handle all that traffic on the PCI bus. I'm starting to picture your basement now, right? Like you, you've got, uh, you probably have a distinctive rack, right? Like set, at least one, right? Set up. Yeah. Like do, do you have like lighting set up? Is it like air conditioned, right? Like how's your ventilation work? Like, are your cables neatly wired? <laughs> you know, like, what are we looking at here? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, no. <laughs> it's not the prettiest setup, but I definitely went function over form, which I can share a picture of the rack so you can see it. But I, I keep oh, wow. it clean. I do keep it clean. It is very functional. But the back of it's kind of a mess. It's kind of on my bucket list here to pull all the wires out and reroute them and cable tie them nicely. But as far as like functionality, it it's good and it's clean. I will use my air compressor to dust it down. I'll open up some of the server tops every few months and make sure that all the heat sinks are clean and stuff. Oh, that is a super cool setup. Yeah, and I've even gone, I go as far as, because my servers are essentially, most of these are high availability. So if I take one down, then the servers, the services will transfer over to the others. And that's just a beauty of what Proxmox can do. So 
I will actually reapply thermal paste to some of them if I notice CPU temperatures are too high. Because that could be one indication like a clogged heat sink filter or dried up thermal paste. Yeah, it's kind of funny. You got to keep track of all that. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's one downside is the TLC you need to to give this thing. But, but let's it's say... It's therapeutic for me as well. Okay. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, if you were doing it before anyway, <laughs> uh, well, you know, why not take advantage of what you can do with it? Yeah. So in your move to, to doing it this way uh, with your hybrid setup, like what... What problems have you seen like kind of go away from your, you know, cloud only usage? Well, because finance is already concerned, I mean, and they should be for any kind of business, you know, do we really want to spend $1,500, $2,000 a month on this service? You remove that limitation. So, I mean, it is just one of those things where you open it up to be able to do more of these kind of things where you want to allow people to download offline videos so they can learn while they are off the grid. But you also want to hold them accountable to being true to, you know, don't share these out. Yeah, that's true. I mean, is there anything in particular that you've noticed that maybe you were surprised that you, you know, no longer had to do because you were like everything was contained nearby? No, I mean, the management consoles that you get from a lot of cloud providers are really good. And so, I mean, I wouldn't say that there's any real benefit there. I think if if I ended up having to move locations or something, or if we had to leave the house, then I would take the important servers that I have, like the transcoder servers, and actually go to QTS, which is a data center nearby. And I would just throw it in there for a period of time until I'm able to pull it out again. Yeah, that's pretty wild that you can just kind of plug it in somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, I would not go take it over to a friend's house because even though, you know, I'm sure nothing bad would happen, I do take a certain level of responsibility and security for that tunnel traffic. And I don't trust or want anyone to compromise it. So I do take security as a forefront, a high value importance. Yeah. So, I mean, do you find yourself like researching, like networking security things more so now that you have the setup? Not really, because before I started programming, I was doing sysadmin work. And so a lot of that networking and security knowledge I already had. So I think, you know, I'm kind of in that unique situation where I'm doing all the development, but I also know how and the implications of how it affects infrastructure and how the infrastructure can affect service availability and the code and that kind of stuff. I mean, all that's left here is, uh, you know, you, you starting to build up your pen testing uh, toolkit. <laughs> <laughs> I think Metasploit has that cover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's funny. Have you gotten, have you like thought about getting, you know, a third party audit just to verify some things for you? Or do you not take it that far? No, I have had that done in the past on a project that I was the solo dev on. And based on the results of that, I've not had any more. So it was a project that I worked on for several years. And, you know, this is like a humble brag. It's one of my great accomplishments, but it's also one of those things where it's hard to say without like bragging. So humble brag, if you will. I was a solo dev on the project. 
it was something that was going into production and one of their requirements was a third-party audit. So they shipped the code off and they ran the audit. It came back and there was only... There was like one critical and two lows on the audit report. And I was able to argue that one of those lows is invalid and the critical was a false flag. So really, out of the couple of years of development that I did on that project, only one low issue got raised on a security check or a security audit. And it was around a third-party plugin with uh, Summernote and it was a cross-site scripting or, or where you could do, yeah, cross-site scripting. And that was the only thing. I put in some wrappers around it and that issue was fixed. And since then, I've been actually using uh, tricks with uh, action text. That issue just went away completely because tricks is awesome. And action text implementation and sanitizing of the HTML is really awesome as well. So I haven't had to worry about it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, c- congratulations on the passing of security audit. <laughs> I know those can be stressful. <laughs> but I do run Breakman on every commit. So, I mean, there there is a little bit of due diligence there. I mean, you have some other options too, right? Like uh, HackerOne as an example, or, or they have other uh, communities where you can kind of open yourself up to, you know, white hat uh, security firms to test your network on occasion for you or services. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if you ever needed to, you could always go that route. I mean, people do that anyway, right? <laughs> Even on yeah. the cloud providers. So it's definitely a really interesting setup. As far as security goes, I think one of the best security things that you can have is do not have any pinholes. So in your firewall, don't have anything open. Always make outgoing requests. If you don't allow incoming requests, you've just lowered your surface attack area tremendously. And making a outgoing VPN connection to then have a tunnel between your network and a VPN or the AWS infrastructure is all initiating through an outgoing request. So you don't have to open up any ports in your firewall or pinholes or anything like that. So that's one way if you are going with a hybrid setup where you have a big offsite computing hardware to complement what you have up in the cloud, that's one way to do it securely. Because you know, then you don't have to worry about it. If it's on a separate VLAN as well, then you really don't have to worry about it as much. If people want to start setting up their own system here, like like hybrid setup, like you've gotten yourself into here, <laughs> where's where's a good place to start? And what what do you what are some of like recommendations you have to maybe maybe some issues you ran into that could have been averted if you had known? The best place to start, I would say. The best place to start is with yourself. Ask yourself, do you really need to do this? Like, what is the benefits of it that you're going to get? Or are you doing this just because you want to or you don't know how to do it in the infrastructure? So once you've validated the need for it to have some kind of bare metal complement to your cloud services, then you need to, like, hopefully you have a team that you can bounce ideas and security off of because you do want to take that stuff into consideration. You don't want this project to be the reason why you all had a data breach. So, you know, definitely take security as a first-class citizen. It is something that has to stay in the forefront of your mind the entire time, both at a physical access 
standpoint from a, you know, opening up your AWS or your cloud environment to a external connection to the hardening of the server itself. So, you know, make sure you have stuff like fail to ban installed and that kind of stuff. I don't know of any good resources that I would recommend as far as like, here's a step-by-step how you do it. But a lot of the information that you need to find, you can probably just do Google searches on. So what was the best piece of hardware you've purchased in this whole thing? I did go overkill and got a 7950X, which is a AMD Ryzen 9 processor. And that thing is bloody fast. It is amazing. So on the CPU benchmarks, it is ranked high up there. Oh, and I would say if if you are going this route, use ECC RAM. It's error correcting memory. And it's very important, especially if you're running virtual machines and that kind of stuff. Because this is not just playing a game where if a bit gets flipped in the RAM, there's no consequences. There are actual consequences in servers. So even if you're using consumer, prosumer hardware, make sure that the CPU motherboard supports ECC RAM and definitely go that route if you can. This 7950X is a beast. It really <laughs> is. It, do you notice it when you, uh, <laughs> when you use it over other hardware? I have noticed that it can... Because initially, just in testing the connection and everything, I was doing just uh, CPU transcoding and it was fast. It almost made me consider like, do I really even want to add in GPUs into this mix? But <laughs> then seeing like the actual wattage performance, it was much more efficient to use the GPUs I had laying around and that kind of stuff. So I would say one other piece of advice, this is something that I'll need to do is redundancy. I need to almost duplicate the setup. So if one of the GPUs ever dies or something like that, I can take it down and then pull it out, repair it, put it back in. So that's something that I have not done yet. That server is a single point of failure, but redundancy is important. So would do you ever see yourself going back to the cloud or is this your your setup for the foreseeable future? So anything that is user-facing, I will always host in the cloud of some sort. Because again, I just don't have the infrastructure at home to do it. So, and when I say anything production that's user-interfacing, that's something that people are paying me money for, like a service. If it's not a service that people are paying me money for, then I will consider self-hosting it. But if they are paying money for, then anything that's user-facing part of that definitely for me has to be in the cloud. Would you ever build these for other people? No. <laughs> Maybe for a friend. But I don't want to get into hardware as a service if that's a yeah. thing. <laughs> hardware building as a service. That's what Best Buy is for, right? Yep. <laughs> oh, but don't use Best Buy's Geek Squad. They are horrible people. Well, I, not horrible people. The business is horrible. <laughs> so is there anything else you wanted to touch on? No, I think that's it. I'm sorry I've just rambled on about all I've, this, but I've it's loved so much it. fun. <laughs> I mean, it's so it's such an interesting uh, setup you got, and it seems like it's really working for you. I'm curious to see, you know, how you, where you take it from here. You know, we'll have to check back yeah. in. Yeah, because it, it really is one of those things where it's not like you have to use cloud or, no, you have to go bare metal. It's like, 
why not both? Why can't you have a bit of both? You know, put user interfacing stuff that you don't have infrastructure to host up in the cloud. Put those heavy calculations securely on bare metal. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. People have been doing it for ages. <laughs> yep. So, no, I think that's it. But if there is anything, if anyone's interested in this and wants to chat more about it, you know, I'm Cobalt on Twitter and very active on the Ruby on Rails Slack channel. So, you know, hit me up. Awesome. Well, I think we're we're safe to move to picks. <laughs> yep. Or actually, uh, we've started a new segment where we're kind of just highlighting what we're working on. Something interesting work-wise. Yeah. Do you want to maybe throw us a little uh, something that you're interested in lately that you've been working on? This hybrid setup has been my most recent project. And then I did do a episode recently. It was 384 Rails Docked, where I basically looked at that new docked project that DHH made up in, on GitHub under the Rails repo or the Rails group. And it's really cool. You know, I was skeptical of Rails docked at first, but it actually is pretty cool. And I actually have a Steam Deck that I use to install Ruby on Rails on and Docker and all that stuff to turn a Steam Deck, which is a handheld gaming unit, into a development environment. So that was a lot of fun too. Oh, that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> I like tinkering. I like computers. So <laughs> this is my wheelhouse of tinkering and having fun. Nice. Yeah, for me, I, uh, I've i been toying a lot with uh, voice cloning. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it's, it's almost just comically fun. <laughs> and they have a lot of like real-time cloning techniques that you can do. And there's a lot of open source out there that lets you uh, run a lot of these uh, computing mechanisms in place on device. And it's just so much fun. I'm looking to see if I can get uh, Alexa to clone voices and then uh, pair it back in new <laughs> in a new one, <laughs> or or just clone strangers as it talks to them. <laughs> oh man, that reminds me of a horrible prank that I saw, and I don't know why I found it so funny, but it was. It's where this person calls a Chinese restaurant to make an order. But then they create a three-way call and put themselves on mute with another Chinese restaurant. And just the language <laughs> gap oh, and no. miscommunication, it was really funny, but it's just so horrible. That reminds me uh, of, uh, what was it? The uh, Oh, there's like a, a, a phone service you could use that, uh, the Jolly Roger. Is it Jolly Roger? Where uh, you, can you can basically uh, merge a call from like a marketer into this bot. That would just like be, a, it had a perfect loop about the conversations. <laughs> oh, wow. So it could waste the time of the person. <laughs> and then eventually they can, they found a way to like call another marketer and have the two marketers talk to each other. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. But yeah, I think the job, it's called the Jolly Roger. And you can basically like, just like merge the call with the Jolly Roger and pick from like a list of like people that they have that will waste the time like of voice recordings. <laughs> That's kind of hilarious. It's very hilarious. They they record them too and like make them available somewhere. <laughs> well, cool, man. I had a yeah. lot of fun talking about this. I know it may I not too. be our typical fit for a podcast, but it was it was a fun experiment and turned into a fun project. Yeah, you know, and a fun talk. 
deploying Rails applications has never been an easy, straightforward thing. And I, I'm, I'm really excited to see people kind of bending it <laughs> in their own ways. And not that you're using Rails, but the whole Docker portion of deployment process has, has simplified things a lot. And I think, where do you put it <laughs> is, a, is a good question, right? Like, you don't need to put your container in the cloud. You can have some some kind of hybrid setup like this. And I, I think it's important to highlight you know, that there are options. Yeah. And again, security is important. <laughs> so of course, of course. Listeners, take security <laughs> in mind. You know, make it a priority. It has to. All right, let's move to picks. Dave, you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to say I'll pick the Steam Deck because that was a really fun project, a very fun episode. But then it's also a very fun device. It's a four-core, eight-thread, 16-gigabyte RAM device. So it is a computer in your hands. And it plays games really well. And it runs Arch Linux, which makes it a fully you know, interfaceable device that you can browse the web on if you want to connect a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse. So I've had a lot of fun with that device. Nice. I've uh, I got a Flipper Zero, which for those not familiar, it's a, a kind of little handheld device that lets you kind of peek into open networking streams and uh, different wave, wavelengths that are surrounding us and see what kind of data is being transmitted on them. You can do all kinds of wild stuff with it. I, I've only just set it up, and it's the cutest little thing. <laughs> and I, I look forward to having quite a lot of fun with it, just kind of testing my own network and seeing what's uh, what's in my home. Cool. So more to come. <laughs> now, can you go war driving with it? Oh yeah, it, it was it was almost built for that. <laughs> really, and it's funny because it has doing that back. In the oh day. my gosh, it has the cutest little like icons to go with things. <laughs> So you're like <laughs> kind of having like Tamagotchi experience with it <laughs> where you got to feed it the Wi-Fi data, you know. <laughs> That's funny. So we'll see. I'll go on a walk in my neighborhood and see uh, what my neighbors are up to. <laughs> oh, wow. You can, I'm, I'm looking up this Flipper Zero. It looks like you can duplicate or basically use it as a storage for RFID cards. Oh, yeah. It has so many different protocols oh, uh, wow. that you could test. It's It's got sensors out, out of, like coming out of its sides, you know, like <laughs> it's pretty incredible. I, I've only peaked a, a couple things. So I'm really, I'm about to have a lot of fun. Wow. I did not know I needed this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, get it while you can. I, they keep uh, trying to deny them entrance into the U.S., so ho- hopefully that stays uh, on a steady flow. I mean, I can see why, because one thing that I did when I was traveling a bit is I got a new wallet that was RFID protected, so the outside of the wallet was shielded, so you couldn't have someone like bump up against you with some kind of RFID reader that can then get your credit card information with that like tap thing. So I can see this being used for potential malicious purposes or devices like it. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, my hope is that it starts enforcing security <laughs> where it should be, right? <laughs> I, I just think of the the car the car keys as an example, right? Where people were just, you know, waiting for somebody to lock their car and blocking the signal or intercepting it and then cloning the key on the fly. (laughs) Yeah. I I think they've fixed that since now, but like it took somebody exposing it, right? (laughs) Yeah. 
So I hope that we all get more secure because of this thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just feel bad for the poor folks in the meantime. <laughs> it's always going to be the case, though, right? <laughs> all right. Well, I had a lot of fun, Dave. I'm looking forward to see what else you come up with and kind of has your how your rack evolves. I mean, it looks pretty incredible already. Kind of jealous. <laughs> I'm going to have to start building one of my own now. They're fun for the whole family. That's <laughs> that's what you have to tell yourself. <laughs> all right. Until next time, folks. All right. Later. Talk to you all later. <laughs>